This morning we're uh, continuing on our series, Stories That Transform. And so far we've uh, had a look at a number of these stories uh, based on the scriptures, and we've looked at uh, great characters, heroes of faith, Mephibosheth, Job, Jonah, Moses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Onesimus, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. In addition to the biblical stories, we've also had a look at some inspiring, uh, amazing stories from amongst us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we shared the 25th anniversary of our Manor House Ministry project, and the testimonies that we had on that morning were so, so inspiring. Then there was last week, we had a celebration on Black Lives Matter, and we learned about others uh, that God has transformed their lives. People like uh, Pastor William Simo, the great black pastor who is very much at the forefront of the, the famous 1906 Azusa Street Awakenings revival there that touched the world. And um, Sojourner Truth. How many of you last week had not heard of that lady before Dan shared that story? I think I'd not heard of her. What an incredibly inspiring story that was. And also Bishop Wilfred Wood. Well, our story of transformation this morning is taken from the pages of the New Testament from the Gospel of Luke. But by way of introduction to that story, I want to tell you another story. And if you've been at our church for any length of time, you might have heard this story before. I think I last told it probably six or seven years ago. But it's one of those stories that has gripped my heart over the years from a book that has gripped my heart over the years. It's an absolutely terrific book. Uh, Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? How many of you have read that? Yeah, quite a few of you. If you've not read it, please buy the book. Read the book. It is so, so inspiring. It's the second best Christian book on the market. I'm far too humble to tell you what the first is. The Bible, yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. Anyway, Yancey's story um, tells, uh, was initially reported in an American newspaper, the Boston Globe, way back in June 1990. And it uh, was an account of a rather unusual wedding banquet. And accompanied by her fiance, uh, fiance a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston, ordered a meal. And as they both poured over the menu, they looked at the selections of chinaware and silverware and flower arrangement because that is where they wanted their wedding reception. They both had expensive tastes and the bill came to $13,000 for which they were required to put a down payment of half that amount, $6,500. Well, some weeks later, the groom got cold feet and he said, I'm not so sure about this marriage thing. It's a huge commitment. And are we really ready for it just yet? Maybe we should wait a little bit longer. Well, his fiancée was absolutely livid. She went back to the Hyatt Hotel to cancel the reception. The hotel manager couldn't have been any more kind to her than he was. He spoke of his own broken engagement. But then regarding a refund, there was some bad news. The manager said that the contract was binding and that she was only entitled to 10% of the money that she'd paid back again. She was told that there were two options. Either she could forfeit the rest of it, or she could go ahead with the banquet. 
Well, it seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of having a party. Not a wedding banquet, but a great big blowout. Because 10 years before that time, she was living in a shelter for the homeless. But she got on her feet, got a good job, put some savings behind her. Now she wanted to use her savings to just have a party and treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was. In June 1990, in the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston, she hosted a party, the likes of which have never been seen before. And this is wonderful. Catch this. She actually changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. (laughs) She sent rescue uh, invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. And that warm summer evening, people who were used to eating half-gnawed pizza off cardboard, dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters dressed in tuxedos served expensive meals to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminium zimmer friends, bag ladies, vagrants, addicts, took a night off from the pavements and sipped champagne and ate chocolate cake, wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies way into the night. That's a true story. Ryan reminded me of another story, a story in Matthew chapter 22, of Jesus telling this story of a king who wanted a wedding feast for his son and prepared a banquet and invited a number of people, but they chose not to come. So another second invitation was sent out to the highways and the byways to the street corners in order to invite those who would come to it to come. One Bible scholar wrote, Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that stoops, now that's grace. Those down and outs in Boston on that warm summer evening in June 1990 received grace. It was a freebie. No strings attached. Gratis, unconditional, unwarranted, undeserved in the parable that Jesus told about those standing on street corners and receiving an invitation also received pure, unadulterated grace. The Gospels are full of such stories as this, particularly in Luke's Gospel. Stories of men and women who are welcomed with open arms by Jesus. They didn't deserve it. Often the marginalized, the disregarded, the sidelined, the ignored, the overlooked by the religious of the world, and yet by Jesus were shown mercy and compassion and grace. Religious people like to say no. You're disqualified. You're excluded. But with Jesus, it was very, very different. With Jesus, it was arms open wide. You're welcome. Come. Now, I never tire. I never tire of reading those amazing stories which are so transformative because they show me what God's kingdom is like and they show me what God, the God that I love and serve and worship, what he is like and they show me what the church is meant to be in this world and we Tamworth Elim Church as a local expression of the universal church that is what we are to be We have a mission statement which speaks of reaching Tamworth with the life-transforming love of Christ. 
And in Tamothelium, we believe that no one is excluded. No one is so sinful, so immoral, so wicked, so disqualified to be beyond the reach of God that everyone is invited to the party. <laughs> Do I hear an amen to that? Absolutely, because that is where we are at. Everyone, everyone is invited to the party. In Luke chapter 7, this is the story. That was the intro, okay? <laughs> Luke chapter 7, we read of an occasion when Jesus was invited to a, an evening meal at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. We're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now again, just we need to ease ourselves into this story and think of what's happening there. Very often when we think of Jesus at the table, we think of that great painting by the famous painter Leonardo da Vinci of The Last Supper, where you've got Jesus and the disciples all at one side of this table, sat on ladderback chairs, um, having uh, their Last Supper. Well, what, what Leonardo da Vinci was doing there was looking at the Bible, first century customs through Renaissance eyes. And um, he was making his own picture of what that night must have looked like. But when Jesus was reclining at the table, in all probability, he would have been laying down on his left side, propped up by his left elbow, and eating with his right hand. And it's good for us just to imagine this and to get inside the customs of what was actually happening there. Because sometimes, and we're all guilty of it, we can interpret the scriptures through 21st century Western eyes. And it's good to get inside that story. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Again, it's really important for us to put on first century spectacles here and to understand what's uh, going on here. This woman was not a gatecrasher quite in the way that we would understand a gatecrasher coming to a party today. But in Middle Eastern homes, the invitation was, if you had a special guest, that basically everybody in the community was invited, and they would sit quietly uh, around um, the room listening to the conversation. And if you find that a little bit strange, and probably we might, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we should think again. Because isn't that what we do when we listen to chat shows on the television or whether you go to an audience? You are listening to a host having a conversation, asking you a question and possibly asking other questions as well to the people who are the special guest for the evening. I love that. And whether it's Piers Morgan, one show, or Andrew Marr putting another politician through the ringer, which I always enjoy seeing them squirm, don't you? Or is that something warped in my character? I don't know. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Oh dear. I can well imagine the host, Simon, getting pretty hot under the collar, can't you? He's invited Jesus to dinner, and here's this, this, exhibitionist who's a, got a bit of a reputation for loose living she's kicking off 
I can imagine that the embarrassment would be a little bit like inviting your bishop around to your quaint rural Anglican church in the home counties and that well-known family, devoid of any social etiquette and decorum from that notorious housing estate, get wind that the bishop is there. And to make matters worse, they not only come to the service where the bishop is speaking, but they decide to sit on the front row, together with their 16 children, making raspberry noises and other rude noises, and throwing paper planes at the bishop, much to the irritation and the embarrassment of the vicar and the elderly upper middle class people in the congregation. I can imagine that if you just get that, that picture in your head, that kind of embarrassment, that that's the kind of embarrassment that Simon was experiencing on this night. It was a huge discomfort. This was so embarrassing for him. She broke a number of social conventions. She was weeping loudly which might have been interpreted as her being an attention seeker. And worse still, her tears wet the feet of the honoured guest. And then she untied her hair. Now that might not mean much to us, but that was an absolute no-go in the ancient world. Only women of ill repute, prostitutes if you like, ever did such a thing. So this evening was going from bad to worse. For Simon the Pharisee, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon had had enough. His mind was made up. This Jesus was not the man that he thought he was, or at least the man that others claimed him to be, a prophet. He obviously wasn't a prophet because he didn't know who this woman was. And he wouldn't have allowed himself to have been defiled in that way if he had. He wouldn't have permitted this charade to continue. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Let me just stop there for a moment. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. That's a really interesting point because Jesus answered Simon, but Simon hadn't actually at this point said anything. He hadn't opened his mouth. Jesus answered him anyway. Julie often says to me, you didn't need to open your mouth. Your face said it all. The cheek. I can't imagine what she is talking about, can you? You can, okay. And maybe, I don't know, Jesus got a glimpse of Simon's face as he looked at what was going on. We're not told. We, we, we don't know the answer to that. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, that's the present-day UK equivalent of £40,000 sterling and £4,000 sterling. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, 
Do you see that, this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now, all of these things might seem a little bit strange to us, but they're all social customs of that day. Therefore, I tell you, her many, sin, her, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. And I just find it, there's an absolutely remarkable irony here. Because Simon, in his heart, was criticizing Jesus for not knowing who this woman was. But when Jesus spoke, Jesus proved to him that he know, not only knew who the woman was, but he also knew what was in Simon's heart. Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, you bet he saw her. But he didn't see her the way that Jesus saw her. Through Simon's eyes, this woman was an exhibitionist. She was a sinner. She was a waste of space. She was absolute scum. She was riffraff. But through the eyes of Jesus, through grace-filled eyes, she was loved. She was worthy. She was significant. She was forgiven. She was a child of God. You see, Jesus understood her heart. And Jesus saw that her actions were not the excessive acts of an exhibitionist, but rather they were the reckless abandon of a worshipper, someone who is a forgiven sinner, saved by grace. This woman had once used her hair to seduce, but now she was using her hair to, to serve. Kisses that were once for sale are now just freely given away. And her response was not the reaction of an attention seeker, but her response was from the loving heart of someone who had received forgiveness and a new start by Jesus, a worshipper, overawed, overcome, incredulous at the grace of God. And I can imagine, if she was around today, if she'd been this morning in our service, I can easily imagine her singing the words that we sang earlier on, those words originally from John Newton, an ex-slave trader. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I can imagine her with her eyes closed and her hands raised, with tears running down her face, just singing those words, singing about the reckless love and the, with reckless abandon. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I am found, leaves the 99. She, she was the sheep, the one sheep that Jesus spoke about, the one who left the fold, the one that the shepherd chased after, didn't give up upon, the one once found that caused a celebration in heaven. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Her sins 
Her many sins have been forgiven, said Jesus, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So Jesus here is declaring that her actions were actually the evidence of her being forgiven. When I thought about that this week, I had another question. Question for myself, question for all of us, I suppose. What is the evidence that we have been forgiven much? (laughs) That's some question, isn't it? This response, this reckless abandon that we see with this woman was was the evidence that something big had happened in her heart, that she had been forgiven by God. What is the evidence that we show in our lives day by day, not just in church, but day by day, that we too are recipients of his grace? Incredible contrast, isn't it? Here's this nameless woman who is utterly overjoyed at the forgiveness and the new start that she'd been given by Jesus. And then you have Simon, religious, righteous, or shall we say self-righteous, respectable Simon, who revealed by his actions that he knew nothing of the grace of God. It wasn't just perfume she poured out, but she poured out her heart in abandon and devotion and gratitude she was a true worshiper and i would say to you this morning and uh, i'm probably preaching to the converted that true worship is all about the heart and as much as i and we as a congregation value what has been going on in this church this morning we just love you know the the talent of our musicians and the great singers that we have And we just love the songs that we can sing because they just give us words to express our hearts. And it's it's wonderful. True worship is actually far more profound than anything that we have been doing this morning, although it includes it. Matt Redman, a, a songwriter some years ago, wrote, Take me back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. Sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. Somebody once said, it's better to have heart and no words than words and no heart. True worship comes from a transformed life. True worship comes from an encounter with Jesus. True worship comes from those who experience God's forgiveness and his grace. And they have a hope in him for the future. When I first became a follower of Jesus, over 44 years ago, it's hard even to say those words. I was 18 at the time, and um, in the church that I was a part of, we used to sing a song. And it was an old song. It was a song written in the mid-1800s. A very simple song, but I remember when we sang it as a church, there was hardly ever a dry eye in the place. And it said, it reaches me, it reaches me. Wondrous grace, it reaches me. Pure, exhaustless, ever-flowing. Wondrous grace, it reaches me. How many of you know that one? My word, you're older than you look. I'm sure you weren't around in the 1800s when it was written. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But what great words. And I thank God. 
I thank God that his grace did reach me. And I thank God that his grace continues to reach the broken and the bruised, the lost and the lonely, the angry and the anxious, the troubled and the tempted, the depressed and the deprived, the rich and poor, black and white, straight and gay, young and old, devout and deviant, princes and prostitutes. I am so thankful to God for that grace. It reaches me, it reaches me. Wondrous grace, it reaches me. Pure, exhaustless, ever-flowing, wondrous grace, it reaches me. And then towards the end of that chapter, we read then, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would the worship team like to come back, please? And as, as you come back, I'll just come into land this morning by sharing with you um, words from an interesting exchange of letters way back in the second century between a man called Celsus. Celsus was a, a Greek historian, and he was a man who was a huge opponent of Christianity. And he was writing to an early church leader, a man by the name of Oregon. Some will call him Origen. Oregon uh, lived uh, in Alexandria in Egypt. So this exchange of letters between Celsus, uh, an opponent of Christianity, and, a, and, and a, a leader from the early church, Oregon. And Celsus wrote these words. When most teachers go forth and teach, they cry, come to me you who are clean and worthy, and they are followed by the highest caliber of people available. But you, a silly master, cries, come to me, you who are down and beaten by life. And so he accumulates around him the rag, tag, and bobtail of humanity. Oregon responds, Yes, they are the rag, tag, and bobtail of humanity, but Jesus does not leave them that way. Out of the material that you have thrown away as useless, he fashions men, giving them back their self-respect, enabling them to stand on their feet and look God in the eyes. They were cowed and cringing, broken things. But the Son has set them free. And I thank God that he continues to do that, that he has a passion for the lost, the least, and the lonely. It's a passion which impassions me. Let's pray together, shall we? Dear Lord, we thank you that you take the ragtag and bobtail of humanity, but you don't leave them that way. Lord, we thank you that you set them, set us free, free to love you, free to serve you. And our response, Lord, this morning is one of deep gratitude, overwhelming love, heartfelt worship. And Lord, we choose to live lives that seek to honour you in all that we say and all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.